Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode is taken from a live webinar, the first in a three-part series on ending the HIV epidemic. This series features brief updates on key steps for addressing each pillar of the United States plan for ending HIV, followed by an in-depth question and answer session. During this episode, moderated by CCO contributor Megan Murphy, Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick and Dr. David Malbranche discuss strategies to expand early HIV testing, maximize patient engagement in HIV care, navigate emerging clusters of HIV infection, and combat HIV-related stigma. For more information about Dr. Fitzpatrick and Dr. Malbranche, and for a link to additional educational content from this program, including downloadable slides, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear expert insights on ending the HIV epidemic. Today's webinar is titled Ending the HIV Epidemic, Strategies for Earlier Diagnosis, Linkage to Care, and Outbreak Response. Joining us today are two expert faculty members, Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick from George Washington University School of Public Health and Blue Rock Care in Washington, D.C., and Dr. David Malbranche, a board-certified internal medicine physician and HIV specialist. Uh, thank you very much, Megan, um, and welcome to everybody who's joined us here on the webinar today. I want to start off just reviewing the HIV care continuum, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, um, and just start there and then we can move forward. So the HIV care continuum is a public health model that outlines the steps or stages that people with HIV go through from diagnosis to achieving and maintaining viral suppression. And as you can see here from the diagram, you have people starting when they first get diagnosed or testing positive for HIV, and then subsequently are linked to care, finally are receiving HIV medical care. Uh, the fourth step in the continuum would be being engaged in care, continually going back for follow-up. And then the final ultimate goal in the HIV care continuum is to achieve viral suppression. So that's basically what we're looking at right now. So, you know, the problem with the HIV care continuum is that it's a great model, but when we put it into real world context, we have a lot of problems. And there are some gaps that persist among or across the HIV care continuum in the United States and actually globally for that matter. And this is a diagram that shows for people uh, greater than 13 years of age living with HIV in 2016, you can see from the percentages here that 86% diagnosed and then that drops down to 64% who are actually receiving care or engaged in care. And then finally about 53% uh, are achieving viral suppression. These are national statistics from the CDC it's important to note that depending on the type of insurance, the type of medical setting, this may be different. But the main point of this slide is to show that there's some gaps in between these different points of the HIV care continuum. People are dropping off. And if we're looking at the ultimate goal of maintaining viral suppression, uh, that's what we want to look at. And 53% is far below the goal that we've set for ourselves of achieving 90% more virally suppressed. And then if we talk about the ending the HIV epidemic uh, initiative, the EHE initiative, there's a focus on regions with the highest burden of new infections. So if you look at this graph in 2016 to 2017, greater than 50% of new HIV diagnoses occurred in 48 counties, Washington, D.C. and San Juan, Puerto Rico. And that second bullet point emphasizes that seven states have a high rural burden greater than 75 cases and greater or equal to 10% of diagnoses in rural case in rural areas. 
And so the focus on the region is to really look at those areas where we have a high concentration and focus, concentrate some of our efforts on these areas to really slow the spread down and hopefully we can get uh, to better outcomes of reducing the spread of HIV. I'm gonna uh, hand it over to Dr. Fitzpatrick who's gonna talk a little bit about the part of the Ending the HIV Epidemic uh, initiative that talks about diagnoses. Dr. Fitzpatrick. Thank you, Dr. Malbranch. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has launched the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, uh, which I hope you've heard about by now, but it is a collaborative effort across HHS or Health, health and Human Service Agencies to leverage scientific advances in HIV prevention a diagnosis and treatment. And the goal of this initiative is to achieve a 75% reduction in new cases by 2025 and at least a 90% reduction uh, by 2030. Uh, but notably, this is a community-based initiative with local programs working together to diagnose and treat HIV as early as possible by offering prevention services like PrEP, and syringe service programs and responding rapidly to HIV outbreaks. Now, early identification of HIV requires a plan and that includes recognizing those at risk for infection and offering them testing, but in a welcoming, non-judgmental and bias-free environment that invites people to want to learn their HIV status. Ensuring testing is readily available and accessible and to the extent possible, offering social support as needed. Uh, many of you may have uh, wraparound services within your clinic. So these are the types of social support services uh, that would be welcomed by patients. And many of you probably know this because you are engaged in these sort of services now. Uh, and finally, your strategy should always include uh, awareness about and ability to identify acute HIV infection. And identifying acute HIV infection, also known as acute retroviral syndrome, is critical because the risk of transmission is much higher in this stage and people usually are unaware of their infection. It's often missed by providers because the symptoms are so nonspecific and up to 90% of the people with acute HIV infection will be symptomatic, and it typically presents as a mononucleosis-like illness with symptoms like those shown uh, in the figure here. Because these symptoms mimic other health conditions, you have to have a high index of suspicion to make this diagnosis. So how do you diagnose HIV? This slide shows the CDC testing algorithm along with stages of HIV infection and days since infection. The diagnosis of HIV should begin with an HIV-1-2 antigen antibody test. If the antigen antibody test is positive, it reflexes to a test to differentiate HIV-1 from HIV-2. And on the right, you can see the timing of positivity for testing with the viral RNA or viral load identifying infection earliest. So now I'll turn this back to Dr. Malbranch to discuss clinician action after diagnosis. All right, thanks Dr. Fitzpatrick. So, you know, uh, she just took you through kind of the stages of if you feel that someone is uh, 
acute retroviral syndrome, what the testing procedure will be, um, and kind of how the results could come out based on that algorithm. But what do you do as a clinician after the diagnosis? Um, this slide kind of gives a laundry list of a few things that you're expected to do after you have a diagnosis. I want to really emphasize the first two bullet points, which are offering counseling and support, and then provide education and highlight the available resources, which could be getting them connected with a case manager or social worker, or even referring for substance abuse and mental health as needed. With these first two caveats, what you have to realize is that everyone is going to respond differently. And if you haven't diagnosed someone with HIV before, or if you have multiple times, just remember that this is their first time going through it. So it can be very traumatic. People still think it's a death sentence, um, still think they won't be able to do the things that they had planned before. So really sitting in it and basing your response with counseling and support on how the patient responds is going to be crucial here. Some patients may be like, okay, doc, what do I need to do right now? And they just want to focus on, can I start my meds today? And then others may break down and cry, say they need to go home and think about it um, and need other needs. You have to be responsive as a clinician to all these various options and how people potentially could respond. Uh, the last four points are there things that we do kind of with a checklist. We're obtaining labs. Obviously, you're going to get the routine labs, including T-cell count, uh, baseline cholesterol, uh, CMP, as well as the CBC. You'll get all those labs at the, at the initial diagnosis. You're going to discuss their contacts and involve disease intervention specialist or DIS as needed. Um, and this is an important point to make sure you warn them that other people will be contacting them to do contact tracing. So if we forget about this part, a lot of patients uh, think that that's the end of it and they're just going to have this relationship with, with you moving forward. And it's important to let them know, hey, we have uh, other members of our team that are going to actually be taking over to talk to you a little bit about your sexual partners um, and so on and so forth for the past three months or so, just to get an idea of how this is going. Prepare your patients for that, because if they don't, it could lead to a very um, not optimal experience when a disease intervention specialist actually contacts them. Uh, this, the fifth point here, discussing treatment and appropriate ART regimens in concert with the patient. Um, you can start, and for a lot of us, we are doing rapid treatment. So on the day that someone actually gets tested and they find out they are living with HIV, you can start treatment that day or make sure you at least get them on treatment within a week. For me, in my experience, I found that a lot of patients like to get information about the types of medications that they can expect and some resources so they can read up on them themselves and figure out the pros and cons of each of the regimens. And since there's so many different options that we have at our disposal now, it's a good idea to give them both online. And then sometimes if you have pamphlets, you can give them that so they know what to expect moving forward. And then it's their decision, not something that you're putting on them. They can make a decision themselves. And then finally, you wanna ensure follow-up. So make sure that your patients do have a close follow-up. And that includes not only giving them an appointment, whether it be virtual or at the brick and mortar place where you work, but also I recommend, and some people don't do this, but I give a lot of patients my cell phone number so they can contact me. The social worker may give them their contact information as well. Um, or you may set up a system in place where either yourself, uh, a nurse, an MA can follow up with them in a week. So even if they miss their follow-up appointment, there are reminders. You can send text reminders that are automated. Make sure that they follow up because as you can see with the HIV care continuum, the drop-off happens after people are diagnosed and linked to care. So we have to do everything we can within our medical spaces to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks. 
So we talk a little bit about factors that may affect linking patients to HIV care. And, you know, we talk about barriers a lot, but I want to start with facilitators here. And so on the community level, you can look at task shifting, uh, mobile outreach, integrated primary care and case management. And by task shifting, we mean that on community levels with resources from community-based organizations to case managers, to the medical and public health personnel, people are all taking a role in this. And so it's not just a burden on one institution or on the patients themselves. And then also on the individual level, you wanna really hone in on peer and family support and have positive interactions with their healthcare provider. One of the lessons that I always, uh, I have learned over the past two decades in you know, treating patients living with HIV and diagnosing new infections is to basically say to people, do you have one person in your network that you trust? Um, and it would be a good idea to tell them about this new diagnosis once you are comfortable with it yourself. The reason why I say that is that a lot of patients think that once they have a positive diagnosis, they're supposed to disclose to the entire world, they're supposed to become the poster child for living with HIV, and that isn't necessarily the case. But I do tell them to identify at least one person that they really trust, and then that way they won't feel like they're so alone in this equation. And then in the uh, box, the blue box at the bottom of this slide, developing an effective patient-provider relationship is going to be key to enhancing patient engagement and care. I can't stress this enough how important this is going to be. And then on the right um, side with barriers, we talk about perceived lack of confidentiality. Many patients are uh, convinced that their information and their diagnosis will spread throughout the entire clinic. So you may want to address that up front. Provider navigation across different facilities can be a barrier if they have to leave one clinic to physically go to another and then to travel to a different place for this care, it, it causes a lot of people to lose follow-up. And then finally, just having limited resources. So not having enough of the resources, the personnel to actually follow a patient through and make sure that they are uh, engaged in follow-up and moving forward. And so if you enhance your engagement in HIV care, these are some things we have found works. Uh, and getting patients engaged and keeping patients engaged uh, once they're diagnosed with HIV. So one, building trust and optimizing the patient-provider encounter. Uh, be aware of specific cultural beliefs. Ask questions. Find out what they think about HIV, what they've heard, um, how, it's how it's treated in their family and local communities. Provide cultural and sex-inclusive clinics uh, and providers. Uh, again, having people and representation of either pamphlets or personnel that reflects the dynamics of the people in that community is going to be profoundly important. The fourth bullet point in those provider strategies is really focusing on a cultural humility framework. And how this is different from cultural competency is that you're not focused on identifying a certain subgroup and saying, oh, this subgroup needs, to, needs me to respond like this. Cultural humility means that you acknowledge that you may not understand exactly what their dynamic is. So ask the questions and then let, let them dictate how you're going to navigate forward with them. And then finally, using support groups, peer navigators, and technology always helps. And that right column that we have in this slide is about communication considerations. And the basic flow of this and the points of these bullet points is to realize that your interaction is not just about checking the boxes of getting labs and referring them to the appropriate people, but your introduction. And for many of our gender non-conforming or transgender patients, identifying with your pronoun or asking them what they would like you to call them um, is, is important. What are your pronouns is a great way to start. Watch your facial expressions, your body language, your eye contact, your tone. All those things can turn patients off or on to the clinical encounter, depending on how you approach it. And then physical contact I included in there, but obviously with COVID-19, 
we're not shaking hands and our physical contact is a lot different. So if it is an in-person meeting, sometimes, you know, giving an elbow or doing something like that to at least let them know that you're present and that you're with them sometimes can make a difference. And then the flow of the conversation, just make sure it's open-ended, uh, but directed about where you want to go. And then also a non-judgmental line of questioning and responses. Um, if they hadn't used condoms in the past, don't shame them or blame them for getting HIV. That's the last thing they need at this point. And then the final, final point of the end of the HIV epidemic initiative that we're going to discuss before we open this up to questions and answers is responsiveness. And that's the last one that Dr. Fitzpatrick talked about a little bit, uh, a little earlier in this presentation. Responding quickly to potential HIV outbreaks to get prevention and treatment services to people who need them. And this next slide is just basically an, an example of what we've seen in the past and, and in an acute HIV outbreak, why reporting matters. And this was looking at HIV incidents in Scott County, Indiana, which is, as you can see from this slide, from 2004 to 2013, had less than five diagnoses. And then from November 2014 to November 2015, they had 181 diagnoses. And the outbreak was assumed once they did contact tracing and an epidemiologic investigation, it was the result of shared and reused needles, cotton, and cookers. And just an analysis of this, um, looking at an initial group of 181 patients who were diagnosed in this time, 88% re reported injection of extended release oxymorphone. And then the HIV sequencing of 159 cases showed a 99% highly related by phylogenetic analysis, which means this was the same HIV strain that was being shared among this cluster of people. Um, and through 2017, after that initial outbreak, 215 new HIV diagnoses were reported. So obviously, doing the breakdown, doing the investigation, doing the contact tracing actually helped to slow this up from that one year period where everything really exploded. But the point of this slide is to talk about the importance of, of you as clinicians to make sure that when you have a new HIV diagnosis in your clinic, that is being reported. Now it may be up to the provider, depending on your clinic, or it may be, uh, you may depend on the lab or there may be an additional staff member that actually is the one charged with reporting, but make sure no matter where you work, that someone is reporting that because from a public health perspective, that's the most important part of thing. I know we think our jobs are just supposed to be clinicians and take care of each individual patients, but we have a larger role to play in this as well, which means we have to, um, if we see a little cluster happening or a few cases coming in to report, make sure those are reported and then contact your local health departments or the CDC if you see something that looks to be problematic or just the tip of the iceberg. All right, and with that, I'll uh, hand it back to Megan. That's the end of our slides uh, for a question and answer session. So our first one that I'll pose to faculty is this. So as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, uh, most of the patients I consult with uh, engage in risky behavior that predisposes them to HIV. However, most of them do not want to see a primary care uh, even when referred. How do we approach this? Uh, some of them may be misdiagnosed with acute depression. Meanwhile, it's actually the acute stage of HIV. I'll take a stab at this. I'm sure Dr. Melbranch also has uh, a response to this. Uh, the first thing I would say is recognize that primary care may not be uh, the right approach right off the bat. So we need to be flexible and nimble enough to receive people wherever they are, build trust with them and get them connected to the place they ultimately need to be. 
I also want to point out some of the language used in the question. And I think we, uh, this happens. It's a human nature for us to um, not be aware of how our language is being received. And I think um, it's very easy for healthcare providers to be perceived as being judgmental of patients. And the, the way the question is phrased suggests um, there is some judgment there around uh, risky behaviors, bringing this, bringing, this, uh, bringing this condition upon themselves. And I think this is one of the reasons people are reluctant to engage in healthcare, especially uh, after learning their they're HIV positive or they have an HIV positive diagnosis. So um, I think the, the short answer uh, to your question from my perspective is to approach this with uh, understanding, find out um, what their concerns are about being connected to primary care. And if, if you are the gateway to their treatment for HIV, then I would just ask you uh, to to work with them where they are, talk to them about their options and ensure the person knows the HIV treatment is available and that there are support networks to, uh, to help the person. Dr. Malbranch. Yeah, I would actually echo that. And I would say the language is really, really important. So no one wants to consider themselves risky, especially if they're just having sex without a condom. And so historically there's been kind of a, a tendency for cisgendered heterosexual providers who are probably having sex without condoms with their partners or spouses to actually be more judgmental and use the word risky for uh, gay and non-hetero uh, sexual populations who are engaging in the same behavior. It's a fine line where you have to acknowledge to your patients like, hey, um, and one of the things that I do to, to phrase this in a different way is not to focus on whether they used condoms or not. People are not gonna use condoms because quiet as it's kept, sex is better, feels better for everyone involved if there's no condoms involved. That's a reality and that's what people talk about on the street. What I think about a better response is, is to look at your area and what you can say to a patient instead of wagging your finger at them and saying, you know, you shouldn't have engaged in risky behavior or uh, you should be using a condom more, educate them about the area in which you live and say, hey, did you know that there's a lot of HIV or, you know, there are high rates of HIV or STIs in our area. And so if you are going to be having sex without a condom, just be, just be careful. And so that way it doesn't put the onus that you're shaming them for a behavior that a lot of people engage in quiet as it's kept, but don't want to acknowledge, but it brings it broader to say, look at the public health things. Um, and then we can consider that. I see there was a, also a question, since we're on language, someone asked as a pharmacist, how do you approach a non-compliant patient? Um, and I would say st starting out with not using the phrasing compliant is a, is a good way to start with that. And typically nowadays, what we, we use the term adherence. And so compliance suggests that there's kind of this powerful force, meaning the medical system, and you have to comply with what we're doing. Um, I think when you're dealing with someone who's non-adherent, or may not be taking their medications or may not be following up, find out a way to discover why this is happening. Um, and whether that's you as a provider, another member of the medical staff, a case manager or social worker, you have to dig at the root of that because there are reasons why people either don't take their HIV medications or don't follow up in clinic. And so it's your job to figure that out and then assist them. Our role is not to judge them and say, you know what, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, you just need to be taking your medications. Our goal is to say, how can we help you 
do better with taking your medications or how can we help you so that you can make these follow-up appointments? Do you need a virtual appointment? Do you need something more frequent? That's kind of more helpful. So I think not only the language, the body language, the verbal language we use, but also focusing on an assets-based approach, which means you're going to be solutions-driven. Give them solutions, not stigma. Give them solutions, not judgment. Um, and that's what we're there for. So it's just a reminder to all of us that we need to do better uh, in that setting. And, and if I could just add, I think for healthcare providers, especially those of us who trained years ago, in my case, decades ago, uh, we weren't necessarily trained to approach or to have this type of humility Dr. Malbranch is talking about. And I think it's really important for us to be uh, to be humble, to practice humility with all of our patients, but particularly with people who are struggling with stigmatizing health conditions um, like HIV, because oftentimes the providers are the ones who are further stigmatizing or making uh, patients feel uncomfortable. And I think we just have to be aware of that. Um, I will also, uh, I also wanted to respond since we're talking about language to the question about the patient who wants to be referred to as they. This is, this is along the same lines of what I'm talking about. If you trained decades ago, this wasn't something uh, we were taught or that was talked about. But now, again, we have to approach this with a sense of humility. So if a patient, so my, my first name is Lisa, but some people call me Kat, short for my middle name. So if I come to you and I say, well, I know my name is Lisa, but I want you to call me Kat. I don't necessarily, I don't expect you to ask me why or to explain why I want to be called that. So I think for me, I've made this mistake. And I think many of us will make this mistake and we will continue to make this mistake but we have to recognize it and be open with the patient. So when I made this mistake, I had I asked the patient to teach me. And once that dialogue was open, both of us felt comfortable and we could really talk about which pronoun, because we never talked about pronouns uh, until very recently. And I think for, I'm not sure the, um, the background of all the providers who are on this call, but we have to evolve as compassionate providers so that we can meet the needs of our patients. And if a person wants to be referred to as they, and I'll, I'll ask Dr. Malbranch to elaborate on this gender, gender identity issue because that's what this is. Uh, but we have to find a way to become comfortable with this so that we are not uh, seen as being biased or judging our patients because they don't conform uh, to the the gender norms that we normally uh, are accustomed to. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I just think if there are some resources, and I'll, I'll try to model what I was preaching earlier about uh, having a solutions-based approach. So if you get in touch with us, and I don't know whether it would be through Megan or through either myself or Dr. Fitzpatrick, I have a lot of online resources I can refer you to. I've made that mistake as well with patients when they tell me that they want to be referred to as they. But the and then I make a mistake. The important thing is that you may make a mistake and that's okay. Don't beat yourself up for making the mistake. Apologize and then move forward. Um, and that's what you really have to do. And at the end of the day, again, just ask them what they prefer to be called. It's similar to when you ask somebody, 
do you want me to call you by your first name or Mr. or Mrs.? When people ask what they want to be called, the patient will tell you. This is the same concept. Ask them what they prefer to be called in that clinical setting. They will tell you, and then that's how you refer to them. And even in your electronic medical records, you can change gender. You can change the name. You can put that in. So it's not only you that will call them by their correct pronoun or their correct name now, but it's also the rest of the staff, which makes a huge difference. Because if you're the one that's getting their pronouns right, and then the front desk is getting it wrong, that's still going to be triggering for a lot of patients, and they may not want to come back because of that. All right, and actually continuing a little bit on this topic, uh, we have a question slash comment. I love the idea of cultural humility. Do you think at any point the CDC, et cetera, will begin to fund specific support for women of trans experience around prevention education to be officially removed from an MSM category, which totally delegitimizes the whole identity of the trans femme experience? Um, I'll take this one, Lisa, very quick. Uh, Rosalind, that's a great question. And I think there are programs out there. And I think the CDC and other um, entities actually do that. Again, I would say we probably can't get into this right now, but I can refer you to some places that do because that's been a huge complaint that, and even with clinical trials, transgender uh, women and men are lumped in together with men who have sex with men. And the whole issue of sexual identity or sexual orientation and gender identity are completely different concepts. So, um, and transgender individuals, uh, mostly transgender women have astronomical rates of new HIV diagnoses. So we do have to treat uh, our transgender brothers and sisters as uh, separate entities in, in and of themselves and they should have more individual level programs. Okay, the next question is, uh, has the rate of infection increased or decreased among the transgender community? It's what I said earlier, it's been high. Um, it, it increases and in particularly in urban settings, but also in rural settings. Uh, we find that transgender women in particular are highly susceptible um, to HIV and have some of the highest rates in the country, much higher than even black men who have sex with men or Latino men who have sex with men. So. The, the short answer to that question is, is yes. So we need, we need to do a lot of work with our transgender and non-gender uh, binary communities. And I, I, you know, I think there, there are structural issues to explain that. There's a comment or a question about uh, the most important factors influencing rapid ART uptake. And if it's that patient provider or system level. And I think thinking about the trans community um, this is very apparent. We don't have the infrastructure or the um, expanded outreach networks needed uh, to make this group feel comfortable coming into care. Um, and, and again, I think we have to look at ourselves as providers and as health systems to understand where we are perpetrating uh, the, this type of bias uh, toward uh, the trans population. Um, and, and also, why aren't we taking care to them if they're not coming to us? And um, what could facilitate uh, those, um, those types of activities or initiatives? Um, Dr. Malbranch, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this question. I think it's a really good one about the barriers to ART, rapid ART uptake. Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I think what, what we have to do as, as institutions, as well as there's a lot of systemic stuff going on, and it could be just geographic location, lack of insurance, 
Um, it could be the, the tone of the medical facility, facility or that it's known as an HIV clinic or something dealing with HIV that people will stay away from it. I think there was a question earlier also about primary care. I think integrating those services so that when someone goes to a location, it's not known that they're going there because they're living with HIV. Um, if we integrate that more with our primary health services, then everyone sitting in the waiting room won't know what each person is there for. And that decreases some of the stigma for our patients. I've heard that many, many times at some of the HIV clinics that I've worked at. Um, I also think, and just tying this in, there's a question about COVID-19 and misinformation, disinformation, distrust of science, and that our provider-patient interactions, we have to clean up a lot. I think in addition to all those systemic things, um, there is also a role that we can play. And I was actually, I'm, I'm in a uh, initiative where they're, it's called Healthy Voices, and they're trying to get more uh, clinicians and medical providers involved in social media. And so for me personally, this may not be the answer for all of you who are watching today, but for me personally, part of how I combat this misinformation, because it gets frustrating when patients come in and they give you all the information that they're getting from the loudest voices in social media or through a Google search, and you have to, you have to spend half your visit combating that information. What I do is I get on social media myself. So I'm always trying to disseminate other information, either through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, whatever medium that I can get my hands on, or YouTube. I try to give people um, the correct information. And people are looking for those of us who have clinical experience to actually get out there. Because if we don't get out there and do it, and I know we're all busy and we see patients and we have full-time jobs, but even like one tweet that addresses an article or you share an article that gives facts instead of disinformation um, will go a long way and reach a lot more people than that kind of one-on-one -on -one communication. So I would encourage the person who asked that question. It's a great, great question. But I think we have to look at ourselves, as Dr. Fitzpatrick said, and we really need to, we need to do more assertive things um, rather than waiting to react to the disinformation to come to us because patients are listening to that. And to be explicit about this point and punctuated, since this is Health Literacy Awareness Month, I think that the barrier we're talking about here is low health literacy. And there's very low um, HIV literacy. And I think all of us can help uh, ensuring people have access to understandable, uh, trusted health information. Because I think the misinformation around HIV, people still not being aware that it's a treatable health condition, uh, this still is a big problem that discourages people from seeking care or even uh, understanding or knowing their HIV status. Okay, so the next one kind of references what we talked about in our outcomes case. So we had a person, you know, being diagnosed with an STI and an HIV test being offered. Uh, so this person wants to know if the client doesn't have insurance, uh, how will that test be covered? Um. I'll take this one, Dr. Fitzpatrick, if you want to add on. If your clinic won't cover people for the test, like the antigen antibody test, um, most of the departments of health and other kind of uh, federal, the, the federally qualified uh, county clinics can actually do that. And are, the standard of care for HIV screening is the antigen antibody test. We do the rapid test with just the antibody because it's convenient and because people will get results quickly. But if you can't provide that there and there's a cost or insurance issue, you can refer them to local departments of health who should be doing that test. In addition, there is a rapid 
antigen antibody test out there. Um, I'm sure there are several other companies. I know of one in particular, but there probably are other companies. And so you may want to reach out and try to contact them because if you can do the rapid test that does the antigen antibody, then it's a, you you win everything. You get, you kill two birds with one stone. So um, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. I don't know if Dr. Fitzpatrick has anything to add to that. I would just say it's a sobering question and a wake up call because I, you know, I'm fortunate to live in a city with very high insurance coverage rates. And even for those that don't have, we have great resources for people. Right. So just to, to even have someone ask in 2020, you know, this question, I think uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's important for us to remember that not everyone can readily access this very basic, vital uh, public health prevention tools. So I, I agree with Dr. Malbrandt, the health department would definitely be uh, the best option. Uh, every state has health departments. So hopefully there will be resources there because this is a public health imperative to diagnose HIV infection. Okay, uh, this question is about kind of enhancing engagement and care specifically for younger people. So the, the common such question is, I'm currently building a peer-to-peer program help connect youth 19 to 29 years old who have been recently diagnosed or have been out of care to our ASOs in my community. I'm working on building a training program for them to better prepare them to be the best peers. Uh, Do you have any recommendations of key items or topics to cover in the training sessions that are specific to youth? So I wouldn't listen to, well, I I would listen because obviously Dr. Fitzpatrick and myself have a lot of experience with this, but I would actually ask you or tell you, direct you, to ask one of the, the patients in your care um, who is in that age group who has been recently diagnosed for some advice with that. Um, and I think you can ask either someone who's been struggling with follow-up and or someone who's actually been follow-up very well. And I think we don't do that enough. We actually ask the people who are testing positive and are linked to care and are engaged and are virally suppressed. We don't ask enough questions about, well, how did you get here? Or how did this work for you? Or how did you achieve viral suppression? What worked for you? Was it, you know, just individual? Was it your family? Was it your community? Was it a local community-based organization? Find out what those things are and then let them tell you how to create that plan. Because, you know, I could tell you some, some points to go with. So could Lisa um, or Dr. Fitzpatrick, but everything is going to uh, be separate. And each individual area, each locale is going to have different dynamics. Um, and each community is going to have different dynamics. So ask the people who live in that community what worked or what barriers need to be addressed. Um, and then I think that should be the lead for your training program. And sometimes you can get a community advisory board that's made of patients who are there or made of local community members um, who are well-respected key informants. Find out, but tap into the community for that and get people involved. I think they'll give you all the answers that you need. And I just want to applaud you and, and encourage you to keep going. Because peer support, particularly for people who are newly diagnosed, is one of the most powerful ways to ensure people are engaged in care and learn about their diagnosis. So push on. Okay, a couple more questions. Uh, How do you approach a person who may be struggling with adherence? What are some strategies that you would suggest there that may be uh, good for clinicians to keep in mind? Well, first, thank you for using such great language. Um, and, and Dr. Malbranch talked about this a little bit. And, you know, we all have different approaches to this. Um, so 
I think you have to you have to talk. You have to be willing to listen and understand what the challenge is. And everyone might will have a different challenge. I'll never forget a patient I had with he'd come to his visit like clockwork. He was always on time. He would sit, I would do the physical exam. He wouldn't have any questions, but he never agreed to have me write the prescription. And after the fifth or sixth time, he said, okay, I think I'm ready. And I said, okay, this is great, but help me understand. You've been coming to see me for a few months now. Why now? Like, what's going on? Why, why wouldn't you talk about the medicine before? And he said, well, because I know that the minute I take that prescription from you, it, may, it means I really do have HIV. And, you know, that was such a powerful moment for me because as providers, we take so much for granted. Just tell, tell people, look, you don't have to die from HIV anymore. You don't have to get AIDS. We can help you. And sometimes it's just not, it's not enough because we have to understand where they're coming from. And there's always a root cause for why people are choosing or not wanting to take medication. So I just, it's a process. Don't force it. And, uh, you know, in time, through building trust with the person, um, you, you may have some success. How have you handled this, David? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I have a patient that even uh, over two years later, who is having trouble, and I'm not seeing him personally in my clinic anymore, but I'm trying to get him connected with people. And when I stripped it all down, I spent like a half hour with him on the phone last week. It's all about his anxiety. And it's all about the realization. And we sit there and we give the diagnosis and we reassure people. But for that individual, again, who is getting that new diagnosis, this is a very traumatic event and it changes everything. It changes their romantic and sexual lives. It changes their perspective on the world. It changes everything. And we have to be acknowledging of that and dig a little deeper. It may take some more time. And we also have to realize that the main priority may not be for our patients to start HIV medications at that moment. So their priority may be, someone mentioned homelessness here, having a home um, or roof under over their head, getting a new job, dealing with a bad relationship, um, you know, getting their money right. Like all these things could be happening and we're sitting there saying, well, you have to start taking these pills now. Again, it's about stepping back and making it more patient-centered. What do the patients want? And then going from there, if someone's T-cell count is, you know, in the 500, 600s and their viral load is, you know, not that high, you can wait a little while. And so you can tell them like, hey, well, let's revisit this. You may not be ready now, but let me know. And here's my cell phone number. Here's the social worker's contact information. Here's another member of our staff. Give them enough resources. And then also don't wait for them to call you or call the clinic, reach out to them periodically to let them know that you care. Because a lot of times, quiet as it's kept, patients will value their own lives as much as we express a value to their lives. So if we act like, you know, it's no big deal that they start or no big deal that they follow up on this, they'll take a look at it as well. And they'll be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. And they'll just move on. And so we have to really invest and look at ourselves in mirroring some kind of compassion and empowerment to our patients so that they can move forward. A lot of them are waiting for us to do that. Great, and we talked about at the beginning, you showed the kind of the care continuum and then you had a, a graph showing the gaps. Uh, there's a question here about, are those gaps getting any better? Are we moving the needle on that uh, from you know diagnosis to care to vital suppression? How is progress on that? How are we doing? 
Yeah, I, I think I mentioned with the slide as well, um, those numbers are kind of stark. And so it depends. So if you look at Ryan White's, Ryan White funded clinics, um, they're actually doing a lot better. It's going to vary by region and state and geographic location. We are doing better overall with that, but there are still subpopulations like uh, younger black men who have sex with men compared to their white counterparts or women compared to men or transgendered individuals compared to uh, cisgender individuals. So I think we need to look at all those things. Overall, it seems to be getting better, but not for certain subpopulations. So that's where we need to make our approaches a little more targeted um, with regards to the, the, the deficiencies that we're seeing in maintaining that continuum. So uh, I was gonna ask about bringing PrEP or maybe even therapy to spaces outside of a medical setting. In the South Bronx, many young people do not ha access medical systems as they're young and healthy and don't see a reason to interact with a medical system. Um, I'm wondering about alternative processes, the internet, phone, et cetera. I think we, we have a, a, a lot of work to do to make care more accessible and convenient for people. I mentioned earlier uh, my preference nowadays to start pushing care out into the community so that we are delivering care in places where people are comfortable and already engaged in their everyday lives rather than uh, having them uh, come to us. So hopefully, especially the, the, um, the experiences we're having with this pandemic are showing us how important it is to be nimble and flexible. And I think to increase the uptake of uh, PrEP and other prevention related resources, we have to find ways uh, to make them more accessible. And I, I also think providers have a huge role to play here. I gave a grand rounds a few years ago to an audience of primary care providers and I asked them, uh, and we were using the audience response system, so it was anonymous. I asked them how many of them would be willing to prescribe PrEP and 90% of them were not. And so the question is, why is that? And what can we do to bridge that gap? Yeah, I think just to add on to that, what Dr. Fitzpatrick just said, I think sometimes we can wait for other systems to be developed. And the individual that asked that question talked about Roman for erectile dysfunction, which has its problems in and of itself. There are online platforms where people can get PrEP. They tend to be integrated with more brick and mortar clinical spaces. There are um, community-based organizations that have adopted a medical component that they offer PrEP because people feel more comfortable going to the CBOs rather than going to a, a defined clinical space. Um, the one thing I would leave you with is something of encouragement that Lisa or Dr. Fitzpatrick left, left before um, is that, you know, we are the answers we've been looking for. So if you don't see it out there, if you see a gap, let that be your mission and talk to either people at your space where you work uh, reach out to local community-based organizations, reach out um, to the Department of Health, see the models that are out there and develop something. Roman for erectile dysfunction, that's a profit base. That's a, a business model that people are just trying to make money off folks. Um, PrEP is not going to be a financial uh, gain for folks and it shouldn't be all about the money. It should be about you know preventing HIV. And so I think if you can develop some of those stuff or start to be the change agent and start to reach out and talk to people, um, and obviously you can contact either of us and I may have some people I can uh, get you set up for because I do a lot of work with PrEP. Um, we could get that started because I'd love to hear about some new ideas because that's exactly the kind of injection of, you know, innovativeness and uh, intuitiveness that we need. 
Perfect. And I'm going to end on this question. We touched on it a little bit, Dr. Fitzpatrick, you started to, um, just about the COVID-19 pandemic and kind of how it's intersecting with uh, HIV testing, diagnostics, et cetera. Can you speak on that and maybe um, just strategies for being more nimble? Yeah, you know, it's uh, the pandemic has stressed uh, all of us and all of our systems, and it's taking up all the bandwidth right now. Um, so I think we have to be um, we have to be more aggressive and continue to be mindful that there are other health conditions um, threatening the you know the health outcomes for particularly underserved populations. I saw someone asking about homelessness. Um, ending homelessness will not automatically address the the HIV epidemic, but you know it certainly can play a role. And I think. Right now, it's very hard for anything else uh, to, to um, be the center of, of our focus. And even before the pandemic, it was very difficult to get folks to focus on HIV. So it makes it even more difficult now. I think some of the programs have suffered because so many of the organizations, particularly the community-based organizations that have been focusing on this, have pivoted to focus on COVID testing. And some of the, I was talking to an organization in Philadelphia recently, and they were talking about how they're now integrating uh, COVID uh, treatment and prevention or COVID identification into what they're already doing because that's where the resources are. So it's, it's a real challenge, but I think we have to continue to, uh, to um, fight for the, the attention for HIV prevention and diagnosis. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Fitzpatrick and to Dr. Malbranche for this great presentation and question and answer session. Uh, we want to remind our participants to visit the CCO website. You can see the full-length video between these two excellent faculty there. There are the downloadable slides from today's webinar, and this is just the beginning of a series. So again, today was about kind of the two pillars of the DHHF plan to end the epidemic on diagnosis and outbreak response, but we'll be continuing with follow-up on treatment and prevention. So thank you all for participating in this program, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day.